once again stand with me for the reading of God's Word, John 11. It would be pricking up in verse 38. Then Jesus, again groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there is a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Loose him and let him go. Thus far, the word of God. Let us pray. Almighty God, may your name be exalted in all the earth. May your name be exalted with the preaching and the hearing of your word. Be magnified in our midst, O God. Attend to that which you have appointed with your spirit, that it would be accomplished in the spirit and the demonstration of the Spirit's power that we might have understanding. Lord, bless your word to go forth with clarity, even to the ends of the earth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Banner Truth uh, publishes a, a, a series of little paperback booklets that I commend to you. It's called the Let's Study series, and it's a, a very uh, useful approach to looking at the various books that are covered. In John, Mark Johnston's book on the Gospel of John, uh, concerning this portion of Scripture, he says, If it is true to say that death broods like the darkest night over these verses, then it is just as true that the words of Jesus here shine like stars. Yet they are words that could have sounded like highest platitudes had they not been backed up by action. It is possible to say the most wonderful things at funerals and yet fail to impart true comfort and and fail most certainly to bring back the dead. As Jesus stands with the mourners by the graveside, however, he leads them into an experience beyond anything that they ever could have imagined. Thus, into the quote. Well, that's where we come to. We have come at last, as you have much anticipated. We have come, as we have just heard from the Word of God, to the resurrection of Lazarus. The Lazarus, the four dead day man, the four day dead man, who was raised by Jesus from the dead. Here is the greatest miracle by Christ. It is overshadowed only by Christ's own resurrection, an event that will take place in just a few months following his crucifixion. With this miracle, we wrap up the first half of John's gospel. Um, it's not necessarily middle, middle of the, the words and so forth, but in the way that John is organized. We are halfway through John's gospel. John has recorded seven miracles that are signs of Jesus', de- Jesus deity, and that he is indeed the long-expected Messiah. Seven miracles, seven representing completion. This is the seventh 
In the first, we saw Jesus turn water into wine in the wedding of Cana, a sign of Jesus' power to give life. The climax in Bethany shows Jesus' power over death and points then to his own resurrection. All these miracles have shown us the heart of our Savior. He cares for the sons of Adam and for our sufferings in sin and under the curse for sin. Thus, we saw last week, he did rage at the tomb. My friends, the hymn writer nailed it when he says, What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. We use four main headings this morning. I'm using the word Messiah. Um, could have used the word Christ. They mean the same thing. But I want us to uh, keep in mind that, uh, even your children, that you would be mindful that Messiah and Christ mean the same thing. They're from two different languages. So I'm using Messiah. Messiah strengthens faith. Messiah pictures faith. Messiah is the only object for faith. And Messiah involves people in his work. So it begins with Mosiah strengthens faith. Martha and Mary had faith in Jesus. We've seen that clearly demonstrated by what John writes. That is why they sent for him when Lazarus first fell ill. He had healed others, and they were certain that if he came, he could have healed their brother. Whatever the affliction is, we're not ever told. It certainly was an illness unto death. But they had a confidence that Jesus could have healed him. But as we saw earlier in the chapter, God the Father had something much greater planned. Jesus even says, when it's recorded, that he loved them, therefore he delayed because of his love for them. And what it meant then was that Mary and Martha stood by where their brother died and they could do nothing about it. When Jesus came, both sisters still had faith in Christ that God would give him whatever they asked, whatever he asked for. Jesus arrives, he comforts Martha. And then he comforts Mary. He speaks of the majesty of who he is. I am the resurrection and the life. And he assures them that Lazarus will live again. Seeing the reality of death as he is entering into the village. The pain of death. The results of the curse. And, and that which Satan has visited upon humanity from the garden onwards. We learned last week that Jesus internally raged in his spirit. And shed then tears openly. John 38 tells us, in verse 38, John tells us that once more, Jesus, it says, groaned in himself. It's the same word that we considered last time, this internal raging at the realities of sin and death and the agony, all that lies before him. Here is the second Adam as the God-man. He sees what sin has wrought, and he, knowing better than anyone, feels the rage within him. Yet standing before the tomb, the time for tears is over. It is time to put an end to the weeping. As the warrior king of kings, the time for battle has come. And he declares, he commands, take away the stone. The Dutch theologian Herman Ritterboss captures the moment well. Quote, even or enough now of tears and wailing. Enough honor has been bestowed on death. Against the power of death, God's glory will now enter the arena. Close quote. Indeed, that's what we see in the scene. So picture it. Martha has joined Mary, she coming with Jesus from wherever he was entering the village. Friends are present too, grieving with them. Visitors have come from Jerusalem, as we will see in the following passage. They've come for a host of reasons. But there's a, a crowd. This is something of a public spectacle. 
And Jesus is commanded, take away the stone. Martha objects later in the verse. Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there's a stench, for he has been dead four days. She objects because she knows what many would know about a body that's been dead for four days. There's a sense that she has a concern for the dignity and the honor of her brother, for the family. For the aroma would be offensive, even causing some to retch. Meeting with a stone over the mouth of the cave, it does not seal in the stench of death. I'm told that if you visit a graveyard in our day, where we do all that we do to bury bodies, there's still something of the stench of death in such places. Martha objects quite literally, she says, for he's a four-day man. He's a four-day man. Lazarus, her brother. The Jews did not embalm their dead as the Egyptians did. Rather, what they did is they wrapped them in a sheet. You think about a, a sheet twice as long as the body would be laid out, the body laid on it, then the sheet folded over. The feet would be bound up. Spices would be bound in with the wrap, and then another cloth placed over the head. It's interesting that um, the Greek there sounds much like uh, a sweatband, like we might wear, uh, something that the men would wear working in the fields to keep the sweat soaked up. That was something that was placed over the head. And then in, in spices and aromatics bound up with the body, all in some attempt to uh, dilute the smell of decomposing flesh, the smell, the stench of death. And Martha's faith was real, but we would be right to conclude that it was weak, maybe even wavered at this point. We would be right to think that the disciples also had their doubts as they're with Jesus, and he calls for the tomb to be open, wondering what it was their master was doing. Even though they were the ones that were with Jesus when the announcement came, Lord, would you come? Our brother's sick. The one whom you love is ill. And Jesus declared to them that this illness was for the glory of God. Have they seen something that looks like the glory of God thus far? Later on, before they've even headed that way, Jesus tells them that Lazarus sleep, and he's coming to wake him up. And they really thought he was sleeping, and he explained to them, no, he was dead. But he's told them he's going to change that. And yet, you can imagine, they would have had their doubts. Death is a very final thing. We all know that. We've been touched by that. It's come very near to our own houses. Martha had been told that her brother would rise again. Verse 23. Martha was told by Jesus that he was the resurrection and the life. And whoever believes in him, even though he die, yet he shall live again. All these had faith. And Jesus was causing them to exercise their faith in that moment. Remove the stone. And then the stench would have poured forth and have been overwhelming. But one greater than death was now present. The king of glory stood before the open tomb. Jesus sums up all his earlier pronouncements, some of which we've just surveyed. In verse 40, he speaks to Martha, and, and he would say, well, he, we didn't hear him utter these words specifically to Martha, but what he has said to her is summed up when he says, I did not say to you, that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God. Some have suggested this is a rebuke against Martha. 
We should not think of it in such a way. Jesus is a gentle shepherd, and he's encouraging one of his precious lambs in a moment of weakness. Indeed, imagine that. Any of us standing before a grave in such a situation, we would have faltered in whatever faith, whatever confidence we had in Jesus. I don't mean to say that we lost all hope in him, but we certainly would have wondered, what? What is he going to do? What can he do? Death is so final. But here we're not dealing with a mere man. Now, when Jesus speaks to Martha, he's not suggesting that the miracle is dependent upon her faith, as some have suggested. She just works up her faith a little bit more and just really believes that her brother will live again. No, Lazarus will live again because Jesus Christ stands at the grave and commands it. The corpse, the smell is there. But here is someone more than a mere man. We're going to see what he's capable of doing. The people had to wait for that moment. But when it comes to God, his word is enough. Just as we heard from Isaiah 40 the moments ago, the word of the Lord endures forever. It goes forth and accomplishes what he sends it forth to do. When Martha trusted Jesus, she saw the glory of God displayed in the Son of God, even Jesus Christ. The stone was removed. We don't know if men moved on to remove it after Jesus commanded or there was a hesitancy at Martha's objection. Perhaps she then nodded to the men and they went ahead and went forth. And nonetheless, however it played out, the command of Christ to remove the stone was obeyed. The stone came away and the stench flowed forth. Before we go on, let's make some applications. Think about Daniel. We use their Hebrew names, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they were carried away as young lads into Babylon by the forces of Nebuchadnezzar. They went trusting their God. These were young men of faith. They had been raised up, schooled in the scriptures. They had a confidence in who God was. And so that even though they were carried away captive into a foreign land and a tongue that they did not know, their confidence was in God. The circumstances were hard and difficult and uncertain, but they had faith in him. And God blessed them, and he kept them, and he caused them to prosper. We all know that God is able to care for us in our days, whatever they may bring. What is it that we say? What do we say uh, when we lose a job? Uh, When the doctor comes with a very sober test results, when the phone rings at 3 a.m., you know, that's the pastor's worst nightmare, the phone ringing at 3 a.m. or something. What will it be? Things happen unexpectedly. Hard things come our way. It's then that our faith is exercised. And a faith that is exercised grows. It's strengthened. And God has appointed that. The question is, then, can you smell death and still trust God? Some of you can say with a confidence, yes, you've recently been there. You still trust God. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Begin from Isaiah. A voice cry out and a response, what shall I cry? The answer is all flesh is grass. We see that here with Lazarus. And all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades away. What a picture. And Lazarus, because the breath of God blows upon it, 
Our days are numbered. God appoints the day of our death, even as our birth. And surely the people are grass, Isaiah goes on. The grass withers and the flower fades. This is reality. We all have a day of death appointed for us. But the word of our God stands forever. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Though we will be laid down, Jesus remains the resurrection of the life. That's our hope and our confidence. This Messiah, yes, Jesus Christ, appoints whatsoever comes to pass in our life so that not even one hair can fall from our head without the Father's will. So walk by faith and not by sight. We may never have to stand before a tomb. I doubt that we will and expect that there be a resurrection. But we will lay down of spouse, parents, children. Our faith can be confident. The word of God endures forever. Jesus is the resurrection of the life. And we can point to this record in John's gospel. Let us move on then to Messiah. Messiah pictures faith. Messiah pictures faith in action. Martha trusted and the stone was removed and Jesus prayed. Uh, Jesus, this is interesting here. We see Jesus praying. There's some lessons for us here. Uh, Thus the heading, Messiah pictures faith. What we see Jesus doing here is a picture for us in our faith and what we should do. Jesus is praying as the second Adam. He is the son of man. Yes, he's fully the son of God, but we see him as he frequently calls himself the son of man. He's depending upon the father for everything. He did not move about on the earth and uh, with the... Uh, the boldness and the confidence of God. His deity is veiled by his humanity. He is living as a man, and as a man, he depends upon the Father for everything. He cannot see the Father. In his humanity, he cannot see the Father. He is fully dependent upon the Holy Spirit, even as we should be. And Jesus Christ is full of the Holy Spirit without measure. And so Jesus puts faith in action. He prays as the anointed one. He prays as Messiah, as the word means, the anointed one. The Messiah prays as the one sent by the Father to do the Father's will. This is something we're going to be seeing more fully uh, prophesied in the book of Isaiah as we make our way forward. We too have been called by God in Christ to do the will of the Father as it's revealed in his word. And thus we need to pray. Jesus prays as the only mediator between God and man, for he is the eternal Son of God. His prayers are unique. But what do we see him do? He lifts his eyes to heaven, for that is where the throne of God is. Moments ago, Martha's eyes are drawn to the tomb. Or maybe she even looks downward to the earth with the hard realities of the circumstances. Jesus taught her and us then in our circumstances to look up to the Father who is seated in heaven. This is how Jesus taught us to pray, our Father in heaven. But Jesus addresses, as Messiah, he addresses God as Father. He does not say our Father. For God is his Father in a most unique sense. His relationship is most unique. In John 10.30, we heard so recently, he said, the Father and I are one. That's not true of us, though we are brought to the Father in Christ, but He and the Father are eternally one. He is the eternally begotten Son of God. God becomes our Father through the salvation brought by Jesus. Yes, brought and bought by Jesus. We are adopted children of the Father, but for Jesus, His Father is eternally His Father, and thus He prays, Father. 
The Messiah also addresses his father with a boldness. He has a confidence in God. When they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying, Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. Notice that. He prays in the past tense. Jesus isn't beginning the process of seeking God's will to do something, the power of God to make something happen. There's already been a communication between Jesus and the Father. He has come to this place even before he came to this place. When the word came from Martha and Mary about their brother, Jesus was doing the will of the Father. Thus he delayed from going. Jesus is doing the will of the Father. The Father's revealed to him what he shall do, and now he is walking it out. And so there's a boldness. He says, I thank you that you have heard me. Past tense also, because it's as if the miracle is already done. Remember the golden chain in Romans? Paul talks about justified, sanctified, adopted, and he comes to glorified. He doesn't say you will be glorified. It too is in the past tense, because it's assured, it's certain, because Christ has purchased all these things for his people. Here Jesus says that same certainty as he prays. He goes on. He's praying aloud. He's praying in the presence of the public. And here he's revealing to those that were looking on the intimacy that he had with the Father. Verse 42, he says, Now I know that you always hear me, but because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Just a side note here, when we're praying publicly, we too should be mindful that the public are present, and we should pray in such a way that um, I'm sure our elders do this, and I'm I'm imagining that you, children, learn to pray as you hear our elders pray, as you hear your parents pray. And that is right, though we do not pray to be seen and heard as so that people would magnify and exalt us, for Jesus forbids that in the Sermon on the Mount. But we need to be mindful of public prayers, that indeed that is what they are. And Jesus, mindful, praying publicly, seeks to benefit and edify those who look on and listen. The Father hears him. Direct with me to John 9, 31. This is after the man born blind has been healed. There's the great controversy with the religious leaders uh, concerning whether Jesus is a man sent from a God. They don't want anybody to think that. Uh, they want to argue that he's an evil man. But what is it the man born blind who is now seen? What does he say in verse 31? He says, now we know that God does not hear sinners. When sinners pray, God does not hear sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. This event of the healing of the man born blind is very much on the minds of the people. Uh, we're going to hear about it. Uh, in the, uh, or did we already hear about it? Could not he have healed him who healed, uh, healed the blind man? It's in the context. So they would have been thinking about that. And here, uh, that which the blind man, the healed blind man, testified to, God doesn't hear sinners. Here's Jesus praying to his father in the presence of the people, that they would have a confidence that the Father hears him. Now, this prayer that Jesus utters, he's not looking for the Father, hoping, you know, hoping and and so forth, that uh, the the Father will open, the the, uh, now the grave is open, that the Father will deliver the miracle. Jesus is already confident that the Father is already hurting. He knows what's coming. He knows that Lazarus is going to come out of that grave. He knows what the outcome would be. And yet Jesus prays aloud so that the people would know 
that he is the one sent by the Father, doing the will of the Father. And that which follows is the will of the Father, and part of that is that the Father would magnify him, Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, and so magnifying that they would believe on him and have life in his name. By way of application, our faith should be like Jesus' faith, standing before Lazarus' open tomb, thanking God our Father in advance, knowing that he will fulfill his promises to us in Christ Jesus our Lord. What are some of those promises? Remember the Great Commission? What does Jesus say right at the end of it? He says, And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. My friends, that's a promise to remember. God does not fail in that. He is with us even to the end of the age. Or Paul's confidence, assurance, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Jesus Christ. Let this faithful record from John's gospel bolster our faith that God will send his son at the last day and at the resurrection and will raise us up from the grave to be with him forever. And that because of his righteousness, we shall be perfectly acquitted and enter into the saints' everlasting rest. Surely this God, our Father, is able in Jesus to supply all our needs today and to deliver us through all our trials and make us more than conquerors in all our temptations. If we would just seek him, lift up our eyes to the Father in heaven and pray, Jesus is a picture and a model and example for us in that. But thirdly, we want to consider the Messiah is the only object for faith. It's a lesson about faith, yes. But the main lesson here is that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the objective for our faith. Here's this one of the people looking on. They they see a man, and many uh, would know, well, he's Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, He's the one that the religious leaders are after. He makes great claims. I've heard things. I've heard miracles done. Some would have heard about the blind man being healed. Others would have heard about the lepers, uh, eyes being opened, deaf ears unstopped, lame being able to walk. And people had a host of opinions about who he is. But my friends, it's not a host of opinions in Christ or about Christ that saves you. You must have faith in Christ and that he is worthy to believe on. He is worthy to look to. The object of our faith must be him and alone, not government, not parents, not your bank account, not your ability. No, Christ alone. In Christ alone, we make our stand. This was Jesus' prayer at the end of verse 42, that they may believe that you sent me. That's the point of all of this. This whole uh, death, burial, and then the resurrection of Lazarus was for this purpose that they would see Christ exalted and magnified, that Jesus, Mary's son, is no mere man, that indeed Jesus from Nazareth, uh, who was born the son of David, is indeed the one that they've long looked for. What was the response of the crowd there in Bethany that day? We'll deal with this more fully when we return to the last part of the chapter. But even that moment, were there those that, Laughed in mockery as Jesus says, roll away the stone. Were there some even prepared to seize him and lock him up like some crazy man shouting at a tomb, calling a four-dead day man to come out? We don't know. We'll never know because Jesus didn't pray and then wait. He immediately called forth, Lazarus, come forth. 
The command was issued by the king of glory. He who is the resurrection of the life. He who is the Lord and giver of life. He calls and speaks with authority. There was little time to wonder about it all. Because Lazarus came out of the tomb. He came staggering and stumbling because he was bound. He came out. And here you see the word of God speaking with eternal and divine authority. And we should be carried back to John chapter 1. As John begins telling us in his uh, preamble or preface, the prologue of his book, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life. And in the life was the light of men. And that light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. This one who was there in the beginning when God spoke, he was the word that went forth from the Father and created all worlds in the space of six days and all very good. Here, Jesus the Messiah, the living word, come in the flesh, dwelling amongst us, speak again as he hears his father saying, call it forth, and the word of God speaks, and Lazarus comes forth as the Holy Spirit has entered the tomb and entered the body and worked the will of the Father in raising Lazarus from the dead. What a glorious truth. But Paul tells us something else about this one who is the word. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians 4. 16, this same one at the end of the age, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then he, we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall be always with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. He who was at the beginning and spoke, and brought whole worlds, vastness of the universe into existence. He who spoke at the tomb of the four dead day man, and he came forth alive, will also speak at the end of the age, and with the command of his voice, he will bring us out of our graves. And in the twinkling of the eye, the Spirit will transform us, and we shall be whole in Christ forevermore. Messiah, Jesus, the incarnate word, the Son of God, God come in the flesh, has all authority in heaven and in earth. A.W. Pink says, Here was public proof that the Lord Jesus had absolute power over the material world and over the realm of the spirits. At his bidding, a soul that had left its earthly tenement was called back from the unseen to dwell once more in the body. Close quote. Only Jesus can do this. Christ alone can deliver us from sin, death, and the grave. And the wrath of God to come on all the ungodly who reject the Son of God. Unless they be hidden in Christ. My friends, put your faith in Christ alone. Fix your eye of faith on Christ and never look back. Though the circumstances may be uncertain. Though the way forward may be clouded with the fog of the situation or the darkness of the day. Fix your eye upon Christ, and look to him, and to no other. There is none other like him. He alone can save a sinner. In this moment at the tomb of Lazarus, we see a glimpse of the majesty and the greatness of the one who is present, who commands the dead to rise, and they do. Jesus, the Son of God, even in that moment, was in a state of humiliation, 
The people didn't expect that to come. There was nothing in his appearance that would suggest to them that he had this authority and power to call a dead man to life. And yet, the Father had exalted him before them. In a matter of a couple months, Jesus will go to a sham trial. He will be condemned to death by a corrupt Roman official. He will suffer more humiliation. He will be nailed to a Roman cross and there bear the sins of those whom the Father gave to him and receive in himself the wrath of God for those sins. He will be doing the will of the Father, established before the foundation of the world. God will punish Jesus as he hangs there. The wrath of God will be fully spent, and God's justice will be satisfied. In John's account, that is yet to come. From where we sit, that work, though, is done. It's yet in the record of John, but here we are. It is finished. It is completed. Christ has come forth from the grave, triumphant. That's why we're gathered here on the first day of the week, for he raised, he was, he raised himself up. The Father raised him up. The Spirit raised him up. And then he has ascended to the right hand of the Father. There he rules and reigns. There is no other like this one. This is why Paul writes those glorious words. It's a remarkable thing. In Philippians 2, Paul's writing to the church. He says, you need to treat one another well. Uh, You need to have the same spirit that was in Christ Jesus in you. And then he goes on to say, Jesus Christ, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. But he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those that are in heaven, of those that are on earth, and those that are under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Even children should sing forth praises to God and acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. Children, you can join with us when we sing and magnify the name of him who is your God, Jesus Christ, the Lord. He is exalted. He is seated on the throne of God as the God-man, even now in our humanity. And the Father has given the nations for him to rule over. I lose sight of that. I read the headlines. lose sight of that. But whatever's happening, it's because Jesus has decreed it to be so. And in that, let us rest. My friends, Jesus is reigning a high to accomplish his will. Let us not fret and fuss with the headlines. I say that to myself as well. Rest in this. Jesus raises the dead. When illness comes, do not fret. Rest in this certain knowledge. Jesus can heal, but if your illness results in death and You die, you are but asleep in Jesus, waiting the resurrection. You will rise again when he comes with a shout, with a voice of authority and the command of God. He will bring you forth. If someone, if some of you are still dead in your sin, you have no salvation found in Jesus. If you were to die today, you would perish in hell. Don't fret. Run to Jesus. He is the living word of God that can give life to those who are dead. He is the Lord and giver of life, and he calls you, he commands you, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. 
But finally, and quite briefly, we want to consider Messiah involves people in his work. We have seen in the text that Jesus called on some to remove the stone from the mouth of the grave. He did not expend his physical energy to do that. He did not use his power to do what men, mere men could do. He called on others to get involved in that event. And that was an event they would never forget. Being told to uncap a tomb of a four-day man, they more than any other felt the stench. But then they were near at hand when they heard the command of Christ, Lazarus, come forth. And there with a front row seat, Lazarus came forth. Oh, what a stunning event for them as Jesus involved them in what he was doing. They were given such a privileged spot to be so close to what God had done. D.A. Carson, before um, we go on, just notice that Jesus, as Lazarus has come out, he says, loose him and let him go. D.A. Carson explains, the corpse, I've touched on this a moment ago, was customarily laid on a sheet of linen wide enough to envelop the body completely, more than twice the length of the corpse. The body was so placed on the sheet that the feet were at the one end and the sheet was then drawn up over the head and then back down to the feet. The feet were then bound at the ankles and the arms were tied to the body with linen strips. The face was then bound with another cloth. The body was then, uh, in this enclosure, was wrapped up with spices. And so the person could not walk. They could hop and shuffle, but scarcely walk. And thus Jesus commands, loose him. Take off the grave clothes, set him free. When we compare this account to that of Jesus' resurrection, we will discover important similarities. Jesus was prepared for burial in much the same way, but in the aftermath of the resurrection, Carson goes on, Lazarus was raised to a mortal life. He would die again. Small wonder that he groped blindly for the exit and needed to be released from the grave clothes that bound him. Jesus rose with what what Paul tells us was a spiritual body. Leaving the grave clothes behind, just leaving them where they lay. Jesus rose with a body that was not limited. It could appear in a room when the doors were locked. He could eat. He could drink. But he also was not bound as he once had been. He has had at that point a resurrection body like under ours. Lazarus' resurrection occurred before Jesus' victorious resurrection. And it could only be a shadow of what was yet to come. And Lazarus would yet die again to wait the final resurrection. Jesus' resurrection was a complete triumph, ushering in the new era for his people. In his life, Jesus involved others in his work. In his death, he depended on others to prepare his body for his own tomb, where it lay, resting, waiting Sunday morning. And my friends, today Jesus involves his people, us, the church, in what he is doing. What is Jesus doing? He's still calling sinners to repentance. He is still sending forth his gospel message. He would have us to be engaged, to make disciples. It is a collective effort. It's not just for the officers of the church. The commanders of the church go. As you are going, make disciples, teaching them whatsoever things I command you, baptizing. That is within the church. But Jesus is also involved particularly and predominantly through the preaching of his word. And you have a role in that as you come week by week and participate in the worship service, bearing witness in the assembly to the good work that God has done in you. And then also through your tithe and offering, supporting the church and the ministry of the word from this pulpit. 
Jesus delights to involve us in what he's doing. We get a front row sheet. We get to see what's happening. What a glorious moment when we see God give new life to a sinner. I'm closing as I began quoting from Mark Johnston. Again, related to this chapter, he says, This final sign that Jesus performed demonstrated climatically beyond the shadow without that he beyond the shadow without that he alone was has power over death. Here is the hope and the comfort of the gospel that he gives to all who believe in Jesus. This is the glory of God, displayed locally by the resurrection of Lazarus and supremely in the resurrection of Jesus. And so it will be displayed in another experience, ultimately in the resurrection of all those who have turned to him for salvation. Do you have this blessed hope? That is the great question of the hour. Do you have this blessed home? Sinner, is your faith in Christ alone as your Savior and Redeemer so that you can say with a confidence on that great and final day when Jesus comes again and raises up his people, I will be one of them. I will be counted in that number. God has had mercy on me and saved my soul. Indeed, these things were written so that we might all believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and in so believing have life. In his name, amen. Father, we bless you and praise you for this glorious account. The resurrection of a four-day man. Lord, what a marvelous, glorious triumph. A conclusion to Jesus' ministry of miracles. Lord, we ask that as we ponder these things, that we would take heart, that we would be encouraged, that no matter what our day and our days may bring our way, as surely there is a day appointed for all of us, death. And then the judgment, Lord, may we look fully unto Christ, our great prophet, priest, and king, the one who alone is Messiah. Lord, we bless you and praise you for opening your word to us this day. In Jesus' name, amen.